Okay. Well, welcome to our show. Tonight, we're, 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 sorry about that, folks. This is the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Maloff, the producer and your host. And tonight, we're going to talk about, the, the title is Justice of Any Type Demands We End the Filibuster. So you can pretty well guess what this is going to be about. Now, I'm going to apologize in advance to everybody. Um, my computer decided to, I don't know, kind of go Trumpian and have a nervous breakdown. God only knows what. So my outline with all my notes, can't access it. But I remember a good deal, and I was able to look up. I remembered what some of the resources I used. So kind of bear with me. I'm going to do the best I can, folks, because I didn't want to deprive you of this information. Right now, you're hearing a lot in the news about the filibuster, why we need to end it, uh, especially on the progressive end. Even Democrats that are more centrist and aren't progressive are calling for ending it, such as former President Barack Obama. So you think, okay, what does the filibuster have to do with environmental justice? All right. Well, the truth be told, the filibuster has everything to do with almost every kind of justice, especially as it applies to any sort of legislation that gives democracy a chance, uh, whether it's civil rights legislation or whether it is environmental protection legislation, it all relies on the Congress as well as the president. And right now, even if we load the House of Representatives up with progressives and they put forth good bills, such as H.R. 1, for instance, once it hits the Senate, well, basically, it's been said that the Senate is where, you know, any good ideas go to die an early death. A lot of truth to that. And a lot of that has to do with the filibuster. So you really can't get any kind of justice unless we can get laws that really represent justice and laws that represent the majority of us that represent the people and our right to have clean drinking water, dependable green power, our right to make sure that we have health care as a human right. Uh, so environmental justice has, is all in that with this. And you can't have any of that if you don't end the filibuster. Now, before we get into this, I allowed a little more time tonight. And I know a lot of people, they hear the word filibuster, and they have this vision in their mind of, you know, the, Jimmy Stewart in that old classic movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And with his last breath, he is fighting for this bill. You know, he can't leave the, he can't leave the floor. He has to keep talking, whether it's reading from the dictionary, whatever, in order to stall a vote, to keep something from happening that he finds particularly egregious or difficult. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? And you're going to find that out. So even though this show exists to report environmental injustice and demand substantive reform, the problem is far more vast than that. In order, as I said before, in order to bring about environmental justice or really any kind of justice, we have to have laws that reflect equal justice before true rule of law. We do not presently have that, okay? Presently, the idea of rule of law in the U.S., as I wrote here, is on life support and failing fast, okay? And some centrist Dems and conservative Democrats like Senator Kirsten uh, Sinema 
And, of course, Senator Joe Manchin, along with the GOP, they can't wait to pull that plug on rule of law and kill it once and for all. So this Congress doesn't represent the will of the people, and it happened for a long time, and we know that. And even when progressives are elected, their hands are actually tied by these legislative rules, especially in the Senate, which effectively neuter any semblance of democratic rule. And again, chief among these legislative obscenities is the filibuster. And in essence, because of the filibuster, a small group of senators can effectively block any piece of legislation and thwart the will of the people for their corporate masters. So we're going to look at a few different sources. You know, we, there was a couple of good stories. One I noticed in Vox, written by Ian Milheiser. Uh, the headline was, The Filibuster is a Jim Crow Relic. And President Obama called it out as such at, um, you know, at, at excuse me, uh, at John Lewis's funeral, okay, because it is. And it was appropriate because John Lewis's entire, his entire life was built on creating true rule of law that brought equal justice for communities of color, especially for blacks. And to keep the filibuster is an absolute insult to his memory. So we're going to look at that. Then we're going to look at a couple of pieces by the Brennan Center for Justice. And they really do some excellent work. Uh, there's one where it's the case against the filibuster by Caroline Fredrickson. Uh, and then also another one called Fixing Justice, Don't Filibuster the Rule of Law by Elizabeth Gotoin. Um, so, again, I'm going I'm to reiterate the idea that the popular notion of the filibuster that you see in the media, in movies and TV, is an exaggeration. It is a myth. It is not Mr. Smith goes to Washington, standing up, fighting for the little guy, but he has to hold the floor and he can't stop talking. He has to keep the floor until he literally practically drops dead. That's not the modern filibuster. The modern filibuster is basically a legislative contrivance that in effect doesn't allow debate to end on a particular subject. And the way the rules of the Senate are, you can't, they can't vote on any piece of potential legislation until debate has ended. So it's a way of killing it. And they even have a dual track system. So these senators, they, they can even be lazier, they, these GOPers. They can basically say, uh, I'm, in, I'm going to threaten to filibuster. It goes on a secondary track. And it just basically, it's, it's kind of like the legislative equivalent of the dead letter box. It goes nowhere fast. So this is really something that's no legitimacy. So let's look at this. First of all, let's look at what President Obama had to say about it. And this was at, you know, um, the late John Lewis's funeral this past summer. And he spoke about how John Lewis endured severe beatings. They nearly beat him to death. Uh, to bring about voting rights for black Americans, and in particular to, to shame the silent white majority that just conveniently didn't want to see the ugliness of white supremacy, but it's still there. And so he basically called it out as a Jim Crow relic, which it is, because the filibuster was used to stall legislation and make sure that no votes ever happen 
on multiple attempts at civil rights legislation. Uh, and so to quote President Obama, okay, kind of bear with me, folks. I'm, I'm doing the best I can tonight. Um, you know, he said, if all, to quote, if all this takes eliminating the filibuster, another Jim Crow relic, in order to secure the God-given rights of every American, then that's what we should do, end quote. And he's right. Now, President Obama has criticized the incredibly uh, increased use of the filibuster. Uh, he was interviewed by Ezra Klein in, in Vox in 2015, and he said the Senate should eliminate, quote, the routine use of the filibuster in the Senate, end quote. You have to remember something. President Obama is an attorney, and attorneys are very careful about their words. The routine use of the filibuster in the Senate does not, that's not the same as saying you want to get rid of the filibuster. It's just saying you're using it a little too much. It's becoming problematic. Cut it down a little bit. Okay, don't kick the habit. Just cut it down. But just this past summer, after suffering through four years of Donald Trump and his neo-Nazism, Obama finally couldn't restrain himself anymore, and he called it out as a Jim Crow relic because it was used to preserve those Jim Crow laws that kept blacks from voting, that kept blacks from having any rights, really. Now, here's the weird thing about the filibuster. It is actually a historical accident, but it went on to become a tool of white supremacy, according to Milheiser, and he's correct. Um, what happened was, you know, we, we all heard the, about the musical Hamilton. Well, this involved Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, specifically Aaron Burr. So in 1805, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr had that duel. Aaron Burr killed Alexander Hamilton. And then Burr returned to the Senate and he gave a farewell speech. And he suggested in his speech that the Senate should change some of its rules. And Burr basically said maybe they should eliminate what's called what was called then the previous question motion, end quote. Now, that was a process. It wasn't used very often uh, before his speech, and the Senate followed Burr's advice in 1806. Now, the previous question motion was n wasn't superfluous, okay? The previous question motion, don't you just love the talk of lawyers and legislators you know, they, they love to hide behind their jargon instead of just basically communicating in, in basically direct ways. So what this did is that the previous question motion was the only, the only tool, the only process that allowed the Senate to end debate between members. Okay, and I think, okay, well, why is that important? We know that each house of the Congress, both the House and the Senate, they are granted the power by the U.S. Constitution to decide what rules, what procedural rules they're going to use. Unfortunately, in my opinion, that particular privilege has been abused. And so we see that quite often members of the House and the U.S. Senate pass laws to which they make themselves in, relatively immune, at least while in office. That's another story. Um, and so one of the things they used was the filibuster. And you can't pass any legislation 
in the Senate, for instance, until you end debate. You can't have a vote until they end debate. So if you don't have a tool to end debate, if you have a tool that basically allows them to potentially keep debate going, you know, until the next millennia, then no vote takes place, and that particular piece of legislature is dead in the water. It's dead on arrival. And that is exactly how white supremacists use the filibuster to block any type of civil rights legislation. Um, so it says here, from 1875 until 1957, Congress failed to enact a single civil rights bill, even though Jim Crow was alive and well. Congress couldn't pass civil rights legislation, even if it had majority support. Okay, This is where the filibuster is truly obscene. It allows a small minority of senators to halt what the will of the majority. It just does. And the only way to override them is to have a 60-vote major- vote, um, in favor and try and get that. Good luck. It's not going to happen. Okay. So between the end of World War II and his little history lesson in 1957, there was a very modest bill that became law. The House passed five civil rights bills, but white supremacist senators, they blocked them all using the filibuster. Now, Democrats at first weren't against ending the filibuster. Maybe they wanted to tinker around the edges. Maybe they thought that if they're in the minority, this gives them a tool to maybe stop the worst of the GOP, maybe. But if there's enough GOPers in the Senate and they have 60 votes, it's not going to happen anyway. So the Democrats did tinker around the edges. And they changed it. So during the Obama administration, they did make some modest reform. One of them was to allow most presidential nominees to be confirmed with 51 votes, okay, instead of 60. But that left the legislative filibuster intact. So it really wasn't much of a reform, okay? It it allowed these nominees to go through with a simple majority, but not legislation. Well, what in the, excuse my language, what in the hell do these people think we send them to D.C. for, okay? This is just basically playing games again. And the filibuster did break the Senate, um, so, you know, once again, this is what happened. All right, so I'm checking my time here. All righty. We're making pretty good time. We still have plenty of time left. So now, let's look at what the Brennan Center has to say about this, okay? So, um, first we have fixing justice, Okay. Don't filibuster the rule of law. This was written in 09, and it was published in the Philadelphia Inquirer, and it was written by Elizabeth Goytine. And it was it was a response on a GOP threat to filibuster President Obama's nominee to head the Justice Department's OLC office, Office of Legal Counsel. So. You know, there was this broad consensus, is what Ms. Gotoin wrote, that the Justice Department needs serious reform. And one office in particular, as I agree, is the Office of Legal Counsel. 
That's the office that brought us the infamous uh, Let's Legalize Torture memo written by John Hughes. Okay, again, another obscenity. But there are some in Congress that want to derail the reforms. They want to filibuster Obama's choice to head the office. Um, and if they do, they're going to be ruling against, They're going to be voting against rule of law. We know this. The filibuster, once again, is a legislative contrivance that is used to thwart democracy itself, to, to thwart democratic rule. There's no, there's no mystery here. Okay? And the OLC is really an important office, all right? So, you know, she goes on to write um, basically how Obama in his first, uh, first term nominated this woman named Don John, Dawn Johnson, um, who's a, a lawyer and scholar, to head the OLC. And Johnson's writings, uh, she's also a law professor, they focused on um, constitutional interpretations that are relevant to the Office of Legal Counsel. Um, she was an attorney at OLC herself uh, as she ran it for two years under Bill Clinton. She's been a voice for restoring the office's lax commitment to the rule of law. Um, she helped draft this, it's a statement of principles and included basic notions such as, quote, OLC should provide an accurate and honest appraisal of applicable law, and, end quote. End quote, OLC advice should reflect due respect for the constitutional views of the courts and Congress as well as the president, end quote. Um, she also basically decried the idea that the office had turned into a rubber stamp, okay, that it's manipulated law to condone torture, and it is a rubber stamp for uh, because basically this is also the same office that produced this memo that said the president is a unitary executive and can pretty much do what he wants, kind of like an elected monarch, which isn't true. You know, again, these attorneys in the Office of Legal Counsel, they work anonymously. We weren't supposed to find out that John Yu, for instance, uh, authored the torture memo. Okay, but we did. Thank God we did. So... You know, once again, the filibuster was used, um, you know, to try and to basically block her. Okay. Now, a minute here, I just lost my my notes once again. And, you know, this all sounds, you know, really very convoluted, you know, um, and I agree it is. But this is what we are stuck with. You know, I have maintained that attorneys, especially ones that act that are elected to office in the legislature, uh, you know, I have maintained that they act like they are the grand high priest of the magic words of the law. And I'm totally against that. All right. To me, the law should be accessible to all. And how reasonable is it to expect people to, quote, obey the rule of law when it's so complex and written in such archaic jargon that you have to hire somebody who's had three years graduate training just in the jargon alone and to a very hefty price tag that a lot of people can't afford. You know, and then they say, well, you know, ignorance of the law is no excuse. And I would say, like hell it isn't. Sure it is. 
It's too complex for us to really know, and it's been written that way on purpose. So now the Brennan Center also wrote this big paper, and it's the case against the filibuster. Okay, I'm just checking my time here now. Okay. And this is a kind of a long one, all right? It's a, they call it as a procedural maneuver, and it is used by a minority in the Senate. In the past, yes, President Obama's right. It was a Jim Crow relic. It was used to block civil rights legislation. Now, it's also used at this point in time to stop any sort of democratic reform, including those that have won the support of large majorities. But you have to understand something. The Senate itself is an undemocratic place. I mean, think about it. The Senate is truly a tyranny of the minority. Unlike the House of Representatives, I know I'm getting off topic a little bit. I have to give you a little background. Um, the House of Representatives, the, the number of Congress people you get is dependent on population. Okay, perfectly reasonable. So bigger states have more Congress people. That's fine. It's fair. It's consistent with the idea of one person, one vote, especially in what we have as a representative republic as opposed to direct democracy. But the Senate's not like that. Every state, no matter how small gets or how large, gets the same two senators. So you see a large state like California with 39 million people and counting. They get the same allotted two senators as small states like Montana with barely 500,000 people. There is no justice in that, none whatsoever. Um, that is truly a tyranny of the minority. That is why you see these senators from these very small states, low population, they have an inordinate amount of power in the Senate. That's why. They have more, more legislative power than the two senators from California. And there is nothing fair or just about that. You know, but that's another argument. You, know, you could argue that maybe it's time to eradicate the Senate. I think so. I think that it should be just a unicameral, a unicameral um, body. Everybody gets elected for four years, period, end of story. And it's based on population. Because I don't see why some white supremacists in Montana should have more say than with 500,000 people than 39 million in California. And I come from one of those small states. I'm in Missouri. And once again, small population state. And we have too much power in the Senate. So let's go on to this. So this is the procedural move, maneuver. And the filibuster was specifically designed uh, ever since, I would say, the failure of Reconstruction to thwart any type of civil rights law to grant any sort of equal rights, especially to blacks, okay? It has been the tool of choice of white supremacists that happen to also be U.S. senators. There's no guesswork here. And President Obama was not, uh, his speech was not hyperbolic. He was, for one, strong enough, all right? You know, again, as I said before, the Brennan Center cited it also. California, 39 million people, they get the same level of representation in the Senate 
as Wyoming, Vermont, Alaska, and Alaska, and Montana, which each one has fewer than a million people. That's ridiculous. And the, the center here, this particular paper was written, let me see now. It was in 2020. Okay. They say by 2040, those numbers are going to be even bigger. That projected population growth, um, they're saying that two-thirds of Americans will be represented by just 30% of the Senate. That is a tyranny of the minority. So it's no small uh, coincidence that some of the most virulent U.S. senators come from low-population states. None whatsoever. Okay, so the filibuster really does undermine any sense of democratic rule. And it does so by denying votes to bills because, again, you can't have a vote on any legislation until debate is ended. So very simply, especially if they know the majority wants it, debate never ends. At least theoretically speaking, no vote, no legislation. Okay? There's no, and no legitimacy to this either. By the way, before anybody that's conservative screams, oh, but the Constitution, no, it doesn't. There is absolutely nothing in the Constitution that speaks to anything like the filibuster. Nothing. The filibuster has absolutely no constitutional authority and no constitutional legitimacy at all. The only thing they have is that both houses of Congress are allowed to pick their own rules. I would maintain, though, that the Constitution giving each House of Congress, both the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, the right to create their own rules, I would maintain that that privilege does not mean that those houses can, can make their members immune to the same laws they pass over the rest of us. Not only the laws, but the rules of both houses of Congress should be forced to be within the rule of law compliance with the rule of law and denying nobody their civil rights. And that's something that has not happened. The Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader are not semi-elected feudal lords. They're not. And they think they are, but they're not. But again, under the filibuster, a minority can keep any reform from happening. And progressives, we will never get any of the reforms we want, whether it's to reconciliation or anything else, as long as the filibuster exists. won't happen, because even if you do it to reconciliation, all they have to do is say, oh, we're threatening filibuster, so even all the things you worked out for reconciliation, guess what? It's not going to have a vote. It doesn't exist. So the Brennan Center has been big on filibuster reform for some time now. In 2010, they launched a, a year-long project, and it was specific to address procedural dysfunction, as they call it, in the U.S. Senate. That's a nice phrase, procedural dysfunction. Um, I'd call it selected thievery, but that's my own opinion. Anyway, um, and their goal was to restore, I, I, you got to laugh at this, their, their goal was to restore legislative accountability. Well, that would be nice for a change. And the way they were going to do it was by reforming rules, quote, reforming rules that incentivize relentless and unprincipled obstruction. 
Okay, that's a mouthful, but it's a good one. So the Brennan Center, to read this sentence through, okay, to quote, quote, our ultimate goal was to restore legislative accountability by reforming rules that incentivize relentless and unprincipled obstruction, end quote. And they're right. And in 2010, they had, uh, they had their own experts testify before the Senate rules, before, uh, let me see now, the Senate Committee on Rules and Administration, they submitted testimony to the committee, and they put together the first report on what they call filibuster abuse. And it is abuse. It's abuse of the legislative uh, process, but it's also abuse of the trust that was placed in these elected representatives. And their recommendations included the following, and I'm, there's three of them, and I'm just going to read them verbatim. Quote, allowing the minority party ways to meaningfully participate, including the right to offer germane amendments. That's one. Two, quote, make it, making it difficult for obstructionists to delay action preferred by the majority, such as placing the burden upon filibustering senators to sustain a filibuster and instead forcing filibustering senators to stay on the Senate floor and actually debate. I'd love to see that. And three, quote, bringing every measure or nomination to a yes or no vote in a timely manner once all senators have had a reasonable opportunity to express their views, end quote. I agree. Now, one reform is to stop this silliness where they don't even have to debate. They just say, I'm threatening to filibuster. Boom, that's it. Make them actually stand on the floor. I, I would like to see Mitch McConnell or Joe Manchin stand there for 24 hours. Maybe they'd do us a favor and drop that. No, no, that's not nice. I shouldn't say that. It may be a, a really horrible dream of mine, but I shouldn't say it. But it's hard to be civil to these people that not only have no respect for democratic rule, they're working very hard to destroy whatever small remnant of democratic rule remains. Okay. So then the Brennan Center in 2012 issued a follow-up report, and it was aptly titled Curbing Filibuster Abuse. And it provided what they called empirical evidence. Um, I'm just going to read this. Quote, it provided empirical evidence of how rampant filibuster abuse was causing an unprecedented lack of legislative productivity, end quote. Okay, fancy way of saying this report documented, okay, with actually, you know, with actual data that filibuster abuse was creating a logjam. Nothing was getting done. It shows the 110th Senate in two in 07 through 09 passed a record low 2.8% of bills introduced, and that's a 66% decrease from the 05-06 year and a 90% decrease from the year 55 to 56. 90% decrease. Okay. Now, the Senate, as I said before, did make some changes um, to those reports and testimony. There's a thing called a cloture motion, okay, C-L-O-T-U-R-E. And the cloture motion is merely the formal process which ends the filibuster. Um, and even though a cloture motion is still necessary for legislation, in other words, 
you have to end the filibuster, end debate before you can actually vote. The Senate adopted changes to its rules governing nominations. So basically, they said, okay, we're going to be reasonable and have just a simple majority vote for president nominations to say a presidential cabinet or to judgeship. But when it comes to legislation, uh-uh, the filibuster is still there. And then they go on with the ultimate thing. We need to abolish the filibuster. It has no legitimate place in any form of, a de- of democratic rule. It just doesn't. We cannot get anything done. We've seen what happened. You know, even though the Democrats hold, albeit a slim majority, can't get anything done. In fact, during President Obama's first term, the first year or two, he had dominant majorities in both the Senate and the House, and they couldn't get anything done. And that's because of the filibuster, especially in the Senate. Okay, the Senate, Senate Republicans are there to make sure that nothing passes in legislation that would actually benefit the average person. Just that simple. It's worked quite well. Now, there are some people that claim that we need the filibuster because it allows for longer debate, deliberation, bipartisanship, yada, yada, yada. Okay, here's the thing. The only way bipartisanship actually happens, let's be honest about it, is when you can't get, is when basically both sides are at a Mexican standoff, so to speak, and neither side's giving in. So they have to compromise, and if they feel the pressure from the public to get something done. The other time bipartisanship might work is when the Republicans are in the minority, and they know they don't have the vote to get what they want, so they give in a little bit. But they don't even have to do that with the filibuster in Look, bipartisanship, I'm just going to say it, bipartisanship is stupid. All right, that may not sound very scholarly, but it's the truth. You know, President Biden stood there, and he wants bipartisanship. And obviously, he's never been in a place where he had a street fight. All right? The bad guys are never going to play it straight. Never in a million years. They're not going to keep their word. And when I say bad guys, yeah, I mean the GOP. I didn't before, but I certainly do now. When the GOP can embrace what is clearly a white supremacist and a neo-Nazi like Donald Trump and his acolytes, yes, they're, they're, they're villains. And we put Democrats, we worked our, our asses off during a pandemic to bring progressives to D.C. and also to settle on some centrist Dems to basically defeat Donald Trump and his Nazi hordes that we saw in action on January 6th, by the way. We did not send them, we did not fight for the Democrats to go to D.C. then and say, we're going to sing Kumbaya in the spirit of bipartisanship, knowing full well the GOP has no intention of ever playing by the rules. Okay? To borrow, uh, what was it? It was an image Chank Uger said on the Young Turk. You know, he kept saying, you know, he said about Biden, it's like, look, the GOP is like Lucy and Charlie Brown. Lucy is going to move that football, and Biden's like Charlie Brown. Why are you trusting her? 
And that is the fact. I don't care about bipartisanship. I don't want to work with the GOP. I know I'm going off on a tangent. I have no, I don't ever want to work with them. You know, it is clear they despise democracy. They want a fair, they basically want a dictatorship. They want a racist dictatorship. No, I don't want to work with them. We won the election. Now we need Joe Biden and, yes, Vice President Kamala Harris to do their J-O-B. You know, when Bernie Sanders pushed the $15 an hour minimum wage through reconciliation into the COVID relief bill, Kamala should have been there indicating that she's going to overrule what the parliamentarian said. The parliamentarian is unelected, and it's not like a court of law. The parliamentarian is not like a judge. So let's get rid of that nonsense once and for all. This is not acceptable. And the filibuster is what makes the GOP so bold. As long as it exists, they don't ever have to compromise, and they know it. They can keep this going forever, and nothing happens. And then they can stand there like Mitch McConnell and very blandly say, well, you know, in his little Kentucky accent, you know, basically, you know, Democrats, they had the majority. They just didn't see fit to push through any sort of programs that we could get on board with, knowing damn well that it was his party with the filibuster that was blindsiding everything. Lucy pulling the football out from under Charlie Brown. Do not fall for it again. The filibuster has to go, and the Brennan Center is quite correct. No, And again, I'm on a rant tonight. My notes are God knows where. Um, so I'm winging this tonight. But again, the filibuster has for decades served only one purpose, and that was to block any sort of reform, any sort of democratic rule. It allows a minority of senators to basically blockade everything and hold the rest of us virtual legislative prisoners. And once again, it has no constitutional state status at all. It's just something they made up. And it was absent from the early Congresses. In fact, I love how the Republicans, the conservatives especially, they love talking about federalism. Well, here we go. Alexander Hamilton, according to Brennan Center, wrote in Federalist 22, quote, to give a minority a negative upon the majority, which is always the case where more than a majority is requisite to a decision, is in its tendency to subject the sense of the greater number to that of the lesser. He basically was saying, when you let a minority dictate, then basically it is a tyranny of the minority and it's the antithesis of the democratic rule itself. Once again, um, we have a little more information. I'm just checking my time here. Oh, we've been going 47 minutes. We have a little extra time tonight. Uh, so here we have, in 1891, Okay. Um, filibusters began to make, in the 19th century, 1800s, in other words, filibusters began to make a difference uh, regarding legislative outcomes. And senators realized that they could stop uh, basically bills they didn't like. 
And there were other senators and outside reformers that demanded the Senate rules be changed to allow, you know, basically a vote by simple majority to determine what happens in legislation, 51 votes. You know, it's called democracy. The Senate should try it sometimes. So here we have, in 1891, there had been a series of filibusters by Democrats, and they, you know, you've got to remember, back then, the Democrats were basically pro, well, they, the Democrats back then were the party of white supremacy, okay? Lincoln was a Republican, remember. So in 1891, there were a series of filibusters, and Democrats threatened to basically kill legislation, and this was legislation that would specifically authorize federal troops to basically be issued to supervise federal elections. And you think, why do you need that? Well, it was a tool used, um, basically it was an early use of the tool to block civil rights protections for black Americans. Okay, it basically it's kind of like having the police there with um, old warrants, you know, at the voting booth so that blacks are afraid to go and vote. Even maybe just a parking ticket, whatever. It's meant to intimidate. Um, Republicans appealed to Vice President Levi Morton to rule whether a majority could bring debate to a close and proceed with the vote. Now, at that time, the Senate hadn't adopted any provision to end debate. Um, in other words, there was no way to basically end a filibuster because it hadn't been used hardly ever. So they hadn't thought of how to end it because they didn't really use it. Well, Senator George Edmonds, who was a Republican from Vermont, defended what would be the, the what's now called the cloture rule. And to quote Senator Edmonds, quote, the Constitution necessarily implies that no minority, whether of one or any other number, should or could unduly obstruct the expression of the will of the majority, end quote. So, again, saying the same thing. Well, his proposal didn't pass. Then during World War I, um, there was a filibuster, and President Woodrow Wilson called the, the senators who did that as, quote, a, quote, little group of willful men. Okay, and this was against legislation that would have armed U.S. merchant ships against German attacks. Okay, and President Wilson then really pushed for basically a change, a reform of Senate rules. To quote President Wilson at the time, he said that, quote, the Senate of the United States is the only legislative body in the world which cannot act when its majority is ready for action, end quote. And it's true. So, you know, again, proponents have said, well, the Constitution says that each House of Congress, and that means the Senate as well, that they can create their own rules. Well, that's true. The Constitution does say that. But that doesn't mean carte blanche. It doesn't mean that the Senate majority leader may decide to, you know, whether it is directly or indirectly defy other other aspects of rule of law or defy constitutional principles. Can't do that, but they've gotten away with it because they hide behind that, well, we have a right to decide our own rules. Well, you know, that's been a sickness among legislators that's endemic to the whole country now. 
you know, I see that in my little hometown. You know, there are little towns in um, St. Louis and St. Louis County where, you know, they elect people and they go into the little board of aldermen and they think that they can write a law on anything. And if that law happens to violate somebody's rights, it doesn't matter. Okay. In my little hometown, they had this one local ordinance where you had to, quote, paint your garage door in a professional manner. I don't know how you dictate what that is. And I received a ticket for it. And I went to court. And I told the judge, with all good, with all due respect, Your Honor, you cannot enforce this ordinance. You're trying to legislate uh, aesthetics or taste. Now, if that were the case, if that were a legitimate law that could actually be enforced and not laughed out of court, then you'd have to go after the whole Kardashian clan. Well, people bust up laughing in the courtroom, but they got the message, and the judge said, well, I'm, I'm going to do you a favor, you know, and we'll just throw it out. And I said, with all due respect, once again, you're not doing me any favors. You absolutely have to throw it out because you know it's illegitimate. Otherwise, what would happen respectfully is I would appeal this and I would also file a complaint against you for judicial malfeasance. But that's what's happened. And in D.C. it's the same way. They think they can make the rules, make law on anything they want to, and the fact that it might defy some, some other form of aspect of law doesn't matter to them. They think they have carte blanche, and they don't. And we need to change that. You know, we have all these beautiful sentiments in the Constitution. They don't, initially, they weren't going to apply to everybody, let's be honest. Okay, those constitutional protections and rights were initially only intended for white men who owned property, period. But, you know, over time, we came to believe in those principles, equal justice under law, and so on and so forth. And those principles, though they may be a bit, um, a bit symbolic, a bit airy, you can't just write them away and ignore them. They're the foundation. They should be the foundation for everything that we do in terms of rule and law in this country. So, you know, once again, we have this, this situation, and it's, it's out of control. Okay? It, it just is. And now we come to the 21st century. I'm going to skip ahead here. And Brennan Center calls it what's called gross obstruction in the 21st century. Apparently, since the 1970s, the filibuster has been abused more and more frequently. In fact, it's become kind of the normal rule of thumb in the Senate. And cloture motions have skyrocketed since 06. And, um, you know, this is out of hand. You know, once again, this is, we can talk about the, the technical language here, which a lot of lawyers and senators hide behind. But the fact is, we have to look at what is the purpose of the democratic rule. Okay? You know, are, do we have basically 100 elected um, aristocrats? in D.C. in the U.S. Senate? Or are they elected representatives? I think that this, the U.S. Senate has abused its power once too often. And now we have to change it. Now, there are some exceptions. 
to the filibuster. Okay. Um, you know, for instance, trade agreements that have fast track rules inserted. They go before the Senate as is, and they can't be amended or filibustered. Now that's interesting. And those same multilateral trade agreements quite often set aside and nullify our laws. Okay, but that's another show. Um, but it's amazing how the, this is really about not rule of law. This is about rule of the rich. Rule of the rich abusing the rest of us who constitute the numeric majority. Nothing else. You know, the filibuster has stopped key democratic reform. Uh, here's a list of some legislation that was stopped by the filibuster. Anti-lynching legislation. First half of the 20th century, Southern senators successfully blocked anti-lynching legislation. That included in the years 1922, 23, 24, and 35. Um, the New York Times, I believe it's in 1935, wrote, quote, one could hardly have witnessed the Senate scene this week and failed to notice the determination of the group of willful Southerners to prevent action, end quote. Okay? Um, and the Times went on saying that, you know, because they knew the bill would pass if it came before a full vote of the Senate, of the full Senate, um, they turned to these rules to block it. Quote, their only recourse was to filibuster, to talk, to use parliamentary trickery, and to delay in every way allowable under the Senate procedure until the weight of other matters should push the anti-lynching issue aside, end quote. And I think that term, parliamentary trickery, is quite accurate. We don't see this kind of reporting anymore. Okay. In 1938, Southern senators also stopped an anti-lynching bill with a 30-day filibuster. Um, there were some uh, Southern senators, let's see now, they filibustered legislation that would, oh, just this past year in 2020, there were Senate Republicans that continued the filibuster legislation that would, quote, designate lynching as a federal hate crime, end quote. Even in 2020, you can pretty much guess which senators stopped that. The filibuster stopped an anti-poll tax legislation, again, a Jim Crow law. All right, whites are unaware of it. Blacks had to pay a poll tax in order to vote. Nobody else did. The filibuster stopped for Permanent Fair Employment Practices Commission. Southern Democrats staged a filibuster in 1946. That was calling for minority rights in the workplace. You see a common thread throughout this? The Civil Rights Act of 1966. They stopped that. And that was led by Senate Minority Leader Everett McKinley Dirksen. Okay? Keep in mind, the Dirksen Building, where Claire McCaskill's office used to be, is named after him. And that legislation would have barred racial discrimination in renting and sale of all housing. Southern political leaders used the filibuster to block a national popular vote amendment. Okay? National popular vote would have basically, in effect, abolished the Electoral College. There was an amendment to abolish the Electoral College that came to the floor in 1970 
and it was filibustered by Democratic segregationists Sam Irvin and Strom Thurmond, and they had help from Republican Roman Hruska. Legislation delayed by the filibuster. There's more. Civil Rights Act of 1957, Civil Rights Act of 1960, Civil Rights Act of 1964. Okay, again, when President Obama called this as a Jim Crow relic, he was right on target. This filibuster is an anti-democratic tool, so it fits quite well in the anti-democratic body known as the U.S. Senate. So now we have in the House of Representatives, they passed a bill called H.R. 1, or For the People Act of 2019. And it would have key reforms. Uh, Included, basically, was automatic voter registration, small donor public financing, redistricting reform, and a commitment to restore the Voting Rights Act. It would make voting easier, more accessible, lower barriers to running for office, and it would empower voters to choose representatives rather than let the representatives choose, that's what they said, choose their voters. This would be the most sweeping reform of voting rights that we've seen in a long time. The major obstacle, McConnell, he won't bring the bill to the Senate vote for a floor, I'm, I'm sorry, to the Senate floor for a vote. You know he'll filibuster it. Okay. So now, we can do certain things to end the filibuster. We could change the rules, okay? And the Brennan Center says the most direct approach would be to amend what's called Senate Rule, let me see if I know my Roman numerals anymore, Senate Rule uh, 22. So the Senate is called a continuing body. And the reason it's called is because two-thirds of its members carry over from one Congress to the next because they sit for six years, whereas uh, Congress people sit for two. And because of that, its rules, you know, continue as well. So basically, if you amend the Senate rule, you could change the rules on the first legislative day. But it would take a two-thirds supermajority, 66 votes. The nuclear option, the majority leader could use this nuclear option. It basically they would have to use what's called a non-debatable motion to bring a bill for a vote and then raise a point of order that cloture be achieved with a majority vote. And then what they're saying here is the presiding officer would rule against the point of order, but then that could be overturned by a simple majority vote. So basically being the filibusters would no longer be the rule. Um, and with this approach, all motions and votes could pass with a simple majority, and that's how you could end the 60-vote cloture requirement, okay? In fact, that's how the Senate ended the 60-vote cloture requirement for judicial nominations. Okay, so they could do it for nominations for cabinet posts, judicial nominations. Why in the hell can't they do it for legislative issues? Well, it's not that they can't. They don't want to. Now, there's some other reforms, um, you could shift the burden to the minority. So right now, the Senate rules require 60 votes to invoke cloture and end debate on a bill. Then you can vote. Um, the one pro- this one proposal for reform would require a minority of the Senate to sustain debate with 40 votes. 
That would make a marginal improvement. Opponents would have to do the challenging work of ruffling up votes. Um, now that just falls in the majority. Um, I don't know about that. Then you could lower the threshold to invoke closure, cloture, okay? So to a number less than 60, but more than a simple majority. So it would be kind of like, okay, we're meeting you halfway. I don't agree with that either. Um, and this next one I really like, though, requires senators to hold the floor. You know, right now, a senator can filibuster. And they don't have to actually debate at all. They don't stand on the floor. They can just say, they can just announce that they intend to filibuster. That's it. That's all they have to do. But what if we did the Mr. Smith goes to Washington plan and made those old coots actually stand and, and, and stay there? That would be interesting. Okay, so, you know, once again, this is something that we're not sure how this is going to end. We're not. Okay, at all. Um, one last thing here, okay. Give me a second, folks. We have a little extra time tonight. I would say that this isn't just about the filibuster. Obviously, we have to end it if we want any sort of meaningful environmental protection legislation, as well as any other fair legislation. And the filibuster is the thing that stands in the way. However, this is really about how the Senate doesn't have to follow uh, rule of law. They don't actually have to follow. They, they actually make themselves at times immune, kind of above the law, to the very uh, laws they pass. And that needs to stop. Okay? Part of the problem is that we have, we have a Senate that makes a mockery of the very concept of rule of law. Okay? It just do. In fact, our entire system, Nina Turner was, you know, said this, and she's very right. Our entire system is as corrupt as hell. All right, the criminals are in charge. The only difference is maybe the cut of their suits, you know, and that's something that we have to end, okay? Uh, you know, we had two attempted, we had two impeachments on Donald Trump. He wasn't convicted. And he wasn't going to be. And he knew it. You know? And that in and of itself is, is an obscenity. <clears throat> the fact is that we need major reforms, including the idea that the Department of Justice, the Attorney General's office, actually should not be part of a presidential cabinet. That makes it kind of a conflict of interest. If anything, the Attorney General's office should be another elected office. It's done that way at the state level. I don't know why it's not done at the federal level. Most states, like my state of Missouri here, the governor doesn't appoint the Attorney General for the state. It is an elected office, and that is exactly what it should be at the federal level. How can you have any accountability? How can you have a Department of Justice that 
you know, is charged with holding everybody accountable, including the president and the U.S. Senate, if, especially a president, if the attorney general serves at the pleasure of a sitting president. You can't. Okay? We are one of the old, world's oldest democracies, and yet we are the least democratic. We have the smallest amount of democracy. I know, I know I'm kind of doing a lot of extra talking tonight because, one, without my notes, you know, I have to just try and remember things, but also because this stuff has been on my mind a lot. You know, I grew up, I always respected rule of law. To me, it was about as close to kind of a sense of holiness as you could get. In fact, as a modern Reformed Jew, rule of law is considered sacred. You know, the idea that we're all, every, we're all held to it. Nobody is above the law. You know, in, in Judaism, um, one of the biggest rules isn't about keeping kosher, or the dietary laws. It's about the very concept that even in ancient times, nobody was above the law, not even a king. Nobody. And that is what should be occurring in any alleged democracy. Now, I've heard some people say, well, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. We elect representatives. Well, that's true. And that's to our, our shame and detriment. But that's what we're stuck with right now. However, it doesn't mean those elect, elected representatives can do whatever they damn well please. It doesn't mean that they can ignore the rule of law. You know, I have a book here, and it was written, I think the author's name was Peter Schweitzer. And the main thesis of the book was that members of the U.S. Congress, it isn't just that, for instance, you know, we all know that campaign contributions are basically by big corporate sourcing or by the billionaire class are basically legalized bribery. It may not quite fit the exact rule of bribery, but in essence, that's what it is. But Schweitzer also talks about the fact that there's another side to this, that elected representatives who have been in a long time, according to his theory, routinely commit extortion. You know, if there's a corporation that wants a certain law passed, then they can say, well, you know, we could filibuster it and it'll go nowhere. Unless, of course, you, you know, care to make a good contribution. They've made a mockery out of rule of law. They just have. We, this is not working. Okay, the Department of Justice, the Attorney General's office needs to be an elected office or a professional office that is not under the president. It needs to work independently. Furthermore, the Office of Legal Counsel should be reduced. It's supposed to actually serve the function of advising presidents as to what the law says, because some of this is quite complex, and I question why it is, frankly. But it's morphed into basically an office that doesn't just interpret law, they uniformly dictate and create law. Okay, that's how we got the infamous torture memo written by John Yu. He created the law that George W. Bush wanted him to create. 
We've been so distracted in recent days with just this, you know, with all sorts of trivia, whether it's cancel culture on Dr. Seuss books, like Could You Spare Me? Talk about inane and vapid. And then we talk about celebrities. We don't talk about these really substantive things that could actually bring back a semblance of accountability and transparency in government and actually a a somewhat functional democracy. That we're not talking about. Okay, I, I really don't care, you know, about whether or not Kaylee McEnany or whatever her name is gets on Fox. I don't care, you know, if Elaine Chow decides that, you know, Mitch and her are going to leave government. I do care about the damage that's been done. You know, people talk about voter apathy, and again, I know I'm kind of drifting, but kind of bear with me. Can you blame, especially communities of color and progressives and young people for being apathetic when they know this is a fraud? Because it is. You know, it's hard to keep voting lesser of the two evils. All right? It it just is. You know, we live in an abusive governmental setup. It's time to end end the abuse. And whether it's fight for $15 an hour or ending these wars of empire, demanding that the U.S. Senate actually obey the law for a change, the fact is real reform doesn't start with these elected representatives. It never has. They respond to whatever power is pushed on them. And in order to counter the power of the billionaires and the power of these big corporations, people have to hit the streets. Peacefully, mind you, but they just do. The only reason 5 for 15 became, came into the national headlines is because activists at local levels had multiple marches, and at first they were ignored and laughed at by the media. I know I was in some of those marches, but that's why they kept at it. You know, the idea of healthcare being a human right, while it's good to elect people that will fight for us, we have to, do, we have to also do some of the heavy lifting. Okay? If you want to have a sane COVID policy, and medicines available for all. If you want basically healthcare of the human right and some form of, you know, nationally uh, paid for healthcare, you know, if you want a restoration of civil rights, if you want to hold the U.S. Senate accountable, and so on and so forth, you have to create that political um, capital. And the way you do that is by making a big noise consistently, peacefully, but consistently. Reverend Barber did that. That's how Fight for 15 with his Moral Monday, it came into the public spotlight. Another way is to institute a national strike where anybody who can afford to do so, everybody except for emergency workers, everybody goes out, tell the rich to take out their own damn trash and clean their own damn houses. National strike until we get Medicare for all. National strike until we get a restoration of rule of law. National strike until the police are held accountable. 
national strike until the excess monies that are spent on weapons systems and police are transferred into public education and public health. National strike until those monopoly patents on COVID drugs and vaccines are basically yanked so that there's open research. That's what has to happen. Don't ever, don't ever believe in a hero coming to your rescue. There are a few that come along. There are a few that are wonderful, whether it's AOC, Nina Turner, Corey Bush, Bernie Sanders, uh, Katie Porter. But they can't do it by themselves. And as long as people just stand back like a bunch of little cowards, Nothing much is going to change. We have to stand together, and we have to find a way to understand that if we're all in this together, that we're going to support each other. You know, it's corny, but there's this old saying, there's no I in the word team. And it's true, there isn't. And I felt for a long time that one thing progressives lacked was some sort of a platform that clearly articulated basic progressive values. It didn't have to include everything with the kitchen sink because the average person is not going to listen to that. Just a simple statement of values. No more than about seven. You might forget something. You can go into that later. But there's no way we're going to get these things unless we're willing to fight for them. And one of the ways you do it is with a national strike, period. National strike until the corporate billionaires are criminally charged for insider trading by selling short because they had insider information about COVID that was denied the rest of us and so on and so forth. National strike until polluters that dump poisons into our water, like it was in Flint, are held accountable. Okay? We have the power. We have always had the power. The very rich and, and the very rich and corrupt, they want you to believe you have no power. They want you to believe that there is no hope. They want you to believe that you are no better than cannon fodder or basically a wage slave that has worked until you drop dead. But it's not true. But that means we have to help each other. We have to value each other. We don't agree with everything. But we have to stand together. And if we do, we can get everything or most everything that we ever wanted and in a fair system. But you get the kind of government you deserve. And if you stand by and shake in cowardice, then you will be abused. But if you stand together in strength, unity, faith, and compassion, then nothing can tear you down. Nothing. So I got off topic a little bit tonight. But once again... This is all part of what we have to do. And I hope you learned something about the filibuster. I'm going to end this a little early. I allotted 90 minutes. We came close. 
And I just wanted to say good night and God bless. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.